do believe in spirituality. So that will take us through that history as well. Moving, Andrew, let's feel free. All right, so Grant. over to you, sir. Thank you very much. Okay. Ha, huh. so choosing a spirituality, or, or how do I choose a spirituality? Um, the question itself, I think this is my basic point here, the question itself presupposes a number of things. Um, and recognizing those things that the question itself presupposes um, can help you in the task of going about answering the question. Um, a lot of this will come back to uh, this little chart towards the end. Some of you may have heard me talking about the, the nature of spirituality before, but the way in which I'm going to lay out um, a definition, a structure of what spirituality is and how that relates uh, to uh, the, the traditional classical values of truth and goodness and beauty uh, through uh, the traditional elements of uh, communication theory, rhetoric uh, as it's called. But I want to, to introduce and give you a handle on this, what can sometimes be a rather vague notion of spirituality uh, by uh, illustrating it from a, a clip from the 1927 uh, Fritz Lang-directed German expressionist film uh, Metropolis, uh, with uh, the famous uh, robot uh, here. Uh, to cut a long story short for you, um, this chap here, uh, Frieda Fredersen, uh, is a sort of uh, he's a sort of messianic figure within the film. Um, he is brought up in the gardens of luxury. He's the son of the oligarch of Metropolis City, um, until uh, one day. His uh, sort of view of the world is shattered when he uh, stumbles across the fact that his life of luxury is built upon the, the backs of the servitude of the downtrodden masses of the workers who all live and work uh, in their underground city and their underground factory that he stumbles into one day and, and uh, becomes to have sympathy for the, the downtrodden masses who uh, during the course of the film end up uh, rebelling against the state and there's rioting and all sorts of things go wrong. Uh, but uh, throughout the film, there's this sort of uh, uh, female John the Baptist type figure called Maria. Uh, and it was uh, in pursuit of the saintly, uh, rather beautiful Maria um, that uh, Frida stumbles into uh, a recognition of the downtrodden masses. And she has been uh, foretelling to the workers that they, they shouldn't really rebel and they should wait for the arrival of the, the prophesied uh, Messiah figure, uh, the mediator. Uh, well, things go wrong and there is rioting and so on. But just uh, at the end of the film, there's this uh, clip where the workers uh, go to the cathedral of Metropolis City. Uh, uh, the oligarch is there. Uh, Maria and Frida are there. And it's, is it all going to kick off again? And everything is going to be torn apart or is there going to be some sort of reconciliation uh, between uh, government and uh, civilians? So, uh, of course, it's not the original soundtrack, and I didn't bother uh, boosting it up because it's meant to be a silent film. So. But here we have the, the, the head of the worker, Maria, coming to Frida and saying, uh, you've got to play your role now, basically. 
And we have this quote, head and hands want to join together, but they don't have the heart to do it. A mediator, show them the way to each other. So the hands, the workers, the head, um, the government. And uh, through his son, the oligarch has come to have more sympathy with the plight of the workers and to see that he has to, to treat them more humanely. And the workers come to see that just, uh, just rioting and tear everything, everything apart might sort of uh, make them feel better for a bit, but it just leaves them in a worse state than they were before. And really, they have to, to work together. So let's all, let's all join hands and make friends. And uh, the mediator brings together the head and the hand. The mediator between head and hands must be the heart. And the film Metropolis opens with this quotation and ends with this quotation. The mediator between head and hands must be the heart. Now, independently of watching this film, I only watched the, this, the, uh, one of the more recent releases of they keep finding bits of the film that had been lost over time and the most re- sort of recent edition of the film, much more followable than previous ones. And I, I suddenly went, aha, this is what the film is actually uh, about. And this fits very much with what I've been writing about in terms of the nature of spirituality as the combination of your head and your heart and your hands. Your head in terms of what you think is true about reality and how you think about things, your worldview in that philosophical term. Your heart in terms of the, the attitudinal response you have towards what you think is true, what, what choices you make, how you decide to will on the basis of what you think is true about reality and not true about reality. And that, that combination of head and heart working together leads you to act in the world in ways that reflect uh, your worldview and your response to your worldview. Another way of putting it is to think in terms of your beliefs, your attitudes leading to your actions. So that a spirituality is about, it's about relationships, how you relate to everything uh, through the integration of how you think about things, how you uh, respond attitudinally to those things, and how you then behave in the world because of that. And that, I think, is a a consistent definition of spirituality, um, which can apply to anyone. Different people will have different spiritualities. People will agree or disagree about what's true. They'll have uh, different reactions to things. One person uh, might think that God exists and react positively. One person might think God exists and react negatively towards that. And those different responses to what they think is true will lead them to behave uh, in different ways, perhaps. Um, So there'll be an overlapping set of responses that will cash out this generic structure of spirituality in different ways. Uh, So you could cash this out in terms of Christian spirituality, or um, Buddhist spirituality, or neo-atheist spirituality, or Hindu, or whatever. It reflects something you can see, for example, in Acts 2.37, where St. Peter's just preached the first uh, uh, sermon on, on Pentecost, and the crowd responds to his message. And we, we, we read, when the people heard this, uh, when they believed the truth claims about Jesus and his resurrection, uh, subject for our second talk, uh, the resurrection that Peter had been proclaiming with witnesses to this and so on, they believed him, they were cut to the heart, That is, their attitude was one of of positive response to this. They were affected 
by that uh, proclamation. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? How shall we act uh, in response to this? So their beliefs and attitudes leading to actions. Of course, Jesus got there in his answer to the question about the greatest commandment. Spirituality means loving God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Uh, It's worded in slightly different ways in the different Gospels, all of which are reflecting back to a passage in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy as well. But basically, it's to love God with everything you are, but it's interesting that it picks out your heart, your mind, your strength, what you do, and love neighbour as yourself, of course. So any spirituality becomes a sort of self-reinforcing loop, and you can put Christian spirituality as, as cashing this out in terms of loving God and neighbour with your whole self in and through relationship with God, in and through relationship with Jesus Christ as his self-revelation. But different spiritualities will then put different beliefs, characteristic attitudes, characteristic actions into that structure. Now, remember back to the, the chart we had at the beginning, rhetoric, which is all about communication theory, lines up very nicely with this way of thinking about ourselves Aristotle famously defined rhetoric as the power to observe the persuasiveness of uh, what any matter admits of. It's not, it's not about uh, propaganda. Um, it's not about the sort of advertising that's just getting a car and you know, draping a blonde leggy girl in a bikini on top of the car so that the car will sell. That's kind of propaganda. It's more the kind of advertising that looks at the car and says, what is really good about this car how can we best help our audience to, to see for themselves and understand the good qualities of this car so that they might consider purchasing it? Uh, you know, it might be a more boring form of advertising, uh, but it's more honest. Um, so there is good rhetoric and there is bad rhetoric. Um, Aristotle famously mentions these three key modes of persuasion in the spoken word, which we call... Uh, Uh, Ethos, the personal character of the speaker, relates to the speaker's goodness. Do they they come across like the stereotypical used car salesman as a shyster? Or do they come across as an honest character who knows what they're talking about and is not trying to pull the wool over your eyes? The second, called pathos, of putting the audience into a certain frame of mind. You're getting to to respond to what is beautiful about something. Um, Pathos uh, in the sense of Um, really moving you, uh, being attracted towards the attractiveness of something, Um, like Tchaikovsky's Pathetic Symphony. It's not pathetic in terms of that was a really rubbish symphony, Tchaikovsky. (laughs) That's pathetic in terms of that symphony really moved me, was really beautiful and attractive. And the third element, uh, logos, and it's uh, the word, proof, rationality, uh, the, the argument provided by the words of the speech itself, which is obviously relating to uh, the quality of, of truth. Hence, if you can go back to Acts 2.37, where you have the beliefs, attitudes and actions, these also relate to the Logos. Peter preached the message and gave evidence to convince people about who Jesus was. Um, they uh, were attracted to something about the message. It wasn't just a a cold intellectual discussion about an abstract intellectual matter. 
It was something about something that, that mattered, if it were true. And they were attracted towards Jesus. Uh, they were affected by the message. And they responded uh, in their uh, ethos. And they responded to the uh, apostles. And they obviously thought that they weren't shysters trying to deceive them. But that they were people who uh, they should go to for guidance on how to respond to Jesus. Interesting uh, quote from the British philosopher John Cottingham. Uh, who says that to everyone's surprise, the increasing consensus among philosophers today is that some kind of objectivism of truth and value is correct. Uh, Truth, goodness, and beauty, he says, carry with them the sense of a requirement or a demand. That's what they have in common. Uh, The true is that which is worthy of belief. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. And the good is that which is worthy of choice, of being chosen for its own sake. And that sense of worthiness is what makes them all examples of value. So we have uh, St. Paul here. Um, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, right or pure, whatever is lovely or admirable, um, think about uh, these Things. He's not saying, you know, what, whatever happens to float your boat, different strokes for different folks, whatever you happen to like, whatever you do in fact admire, apart from the question of whether you are within your rights to admire that thing, whether it is admirable, quite apart from the question of do you happen to admire it. Um, so uh, St. Paul certainly doesn't sound like a, a relativist in these terms in, in Scripture. And then uh, truth relating through logos to beliefs, goodness through character to actions, uh, and uh, beauty through pathos to our attitudes, hence we get the the three-by-three graph here. So, is the message true that we're considering? Is the spirituality true? Is Is it meaningful is it, is it not only worthy of belief, but, but worthy of, of, of choice in that sense? Am I rightfully moved by it? Is it practical? Is it livable? These all seem to be important questions to ask about a spirituality. Suppose this analysis I've just presented of what spirituality is chimes with you. Well, then it seems to me that when you are, if you're asking the question... What spirituality should I build my life around? Should I incorporate into myself? Or myself into, to put it that way. It follows that you're making certain assumptions about various things. It follows, for example, that you think that probably there is a you that has one or more relationships with reality. Because that's what spirituality is about. And you have various uh, beliefs about the desirability, uh, the reality, the knowability, the communicability, the consistency of objective truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, You're not saying, oh, spirituality, oh, that's quite interesting, I'll just pick one at random. Or I'll flip a coin. You're actually thinking... This is a matter where it's sensible to exercise some wisdom in how I go about choosing things according to some standards of choosing things that matter. 
And that means you're making certain assumptions about the nature of reality, of value, of yourself, of relationship to what is real and good, true, beautiful and so on, in the very asking of the question, what spirituality should I choose? It also follows that you are, at least to some degree, committed to pursuing, that's making choices that lead you towards this uh, integrative quest to inform yourself with beliefs that are true, with a character that's beautiful, a character that's both shaped by and reflected in activities and actions that you think are actually good, that this is a good way of life to adopt, and so on. So consequently, I think it follows that you should ask the following kinds of questions. What basic worldview foundations at the spiritual level of what's true about reality, of what we think about reality, what basic worldview foundations for spirituality are there? What are the the certain set of of options? And there's only a sort of limited set of options. For example, should you have a, a naturalistic worldview? a worldview that excludes anything supernatural, or a worldview that that can include something supernatural? Um, Should you have a worldview that's that's monistic, in the sense that it only emits one kind of reality, be that physical or be that spiritual, or that's, in some sense, pluralistic, that says, well, maybe there are both physical and non-physical things natural and supernatural things. Um, There's only a certain limited range of of options in cutting up the territory. And then, having having looked at the sort of options, are any of these worldviews inconsistent with the beliefs, attitudes and actions required by the spiritual quest itself? Um, And actually, I would argue, and I've argued in some previous talks here, that, for example, uh, monastic, uh, monistic worldviews, worldviews that only admit one kind of reality or one, one reality, both whether materialism or pantheism, are actually inconsistent with the spiritual quest at numerous points. In, for example, in the last talk that I gave here, if you were here then, I was arguing about the issue of can we have thoughts that are about things so that we can have thoughts that are true or false about things. And I was arguing by uh, quoting from an atheist philosopher that if, if materialism is true, then it's not possible for us to have thoughts that are about things. And yet the question, what spirituality should I adopt, is obviously a thought about something. And so it would be inconsistent for you to ask the question, what spirituality should I adopt, and then answer it by adopting a spirituality that contradicts the possibility of asking the question that led you to that conclusion. Of the worldviews that appear to be consistent with the spiritual quest, are some or is one in a a, a better fit than the others? So you go through a sort of process of what's the territory, the possible range of answers. Are some of these possible answers that are being offered inconsistent with my quest for a good, true, beautiful spirituality, with asking the question, how should I be spiritual in the world? And once you've pared things down to answers that seem consistent with that very quest itself, 
you're into the question of is any particular spirituality uh, the best supported answer in comparison with all the others. You're never going to, I suggest, find the perfect answer, a spirituality and a worldview that has absolutely no problems with it at all, but at the very least you want to try and look for the one that has the fewest or the, the, the least serious set of problems with it. Otherwise, you might as well go back to just tossing a coin. And uh, I think my time's up, so I'll end there. Thank you. Right, we'd like to tease out some of those interesting ideas. Thank you. Start off then, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned pluralism in your talk there. Um, some people would argue that that's perfectly good thing to have because if you look at this of what's called perennialist philosophy, and there is one many like the old elephant and each person's touching each bit. So only got various aspects of something which is might be true. So the question is is first of all, do you believe that there is an absolute truth out there which is real in the sense that we discover the world, so there's some sort of spiritual reality so that other people say Muslims or Hindus have got the wrong picture. Mm. And if that is the case, then is there only one way to discover that reality, or is there a better, a better metaphor mm. would be to think there's a big ocean of truth, and that all these streams not flow into the ocean, but there's different points on the shore, but the, there's still this sort of truth out there. But right. do you believe in some sort of absolute reality? Um, yeah, okay, good. Very good question, complicated question, and a number of different questions in there. I was talk, uh, talking about plurality in terms of recognising different types of metaphysical types of existence, rather than plurality in terms of the epistemological question about, about a pluralism of truth claims. So I was talking about recognising, do you think it's possible, you know, you'd have a worldview that says you know, there's only physical things, or a worldview, that, uh, sort of pantheistic Eastern worldview that says, no, there are no physical things, there are only spiritual things. Uh, and you can have a worldview that says, no, well, there's both types of things. You know, maybe there's a, a spiritual God who created a physical universe, like Christians believe. Um, once you've said that, that seems to exhaust the options. Um, the only other optional category would be nothing, but we're here, so there's obviously something, so it's either physical or not physical, or both. And, you know, what other option is there? So that, that lays out your, your, your fields. Um, so we, we seem to know, sort of a priori, as it were, that there's a limited set of options of, of how reality could be, and then it's a question of, of trying to most wisely work out which of those answers you think is most plausibly true. Uh, you don't have to think that you have an infallible access to truth or a comprehensive access to reality but if you think that you have uh, enough reason to think that a certain viewpoint is more plausible than the others then of course that's the viewpoint that you, you think you ought to adopt and I would, I would say that of course you think therefore that any viewpoint that is actually in contradiction to that viewpoint at that point of contradiction must be wrong but that's not the same thing as saying, because I'm a Christian, 
I think that Muslims have everything wrong. Indeed, I would say because I'm a Christian, I think that Muslims have more things right in their worldview, in their spirituality, than materialists do. Because both I and the Muslim have a... Uh, a, a metaphysically pluralistic worldview that says there are physical things, there are metaphysical things, there's God, he created the world, um, God interacts with us, he's interested in us, he, you know, maybe he's a revealing kind of personal kind of God, he's a God to whom one should pray, all sorts of things we have in common, um, but on those things that we don't have in common, obviously, you know, I'm going to say, I think Jesus is divine, and the Muslim is going to say, no, he is not that's blasphemous. <laughs> and we are both going to agree that we are making contradictory truth claims about who Jesus is and that uh, we can't both be right about that. Uh, we could both be, you know. <laughs> uh, they're mutually exclusive uh, truth claims, uh, so we can't both be right. So I'm certainly not a sort of epistemological pluralist going a sort of postmodern, just, you know. Otherwise, I think you should be back to why bother putting effort into asking and seeking and coming to causes like this and debate. Why not just toss a coin? <laughs> Josh, you seem to be arguing for sort of a pragmatic point, like find whatever spirituality is useful for you, sort of thing, as opposed to trying to ascertain what is true or you know, searching for truth, sort of thing, even though you talk about truth quite a lot in that talk. Uh, but um, do you not think this, this, this idea of, you know, being down to earth and finding something that that's right for you, is it odds with the idea of a, of a truth in the way that you sort of characterise it? Okay, well, um, this perhaps is a failure of communication on, on my part, but I, I hope the, the, the reiteration of the fact that I was pointing to the need for the spiritual quest to be guided by a belief in objective standards of truth and goodness and beauty, uh, and that one was looking for um, uh, a spirituality and a worldview that was true and good and beautiful means that I'm, I'm not I'm certainly not just taking a pragmatic choose something that works for you approach what, what, I, what I'm advocating what I'm pointing out is a, a matter of inner consistency coherence which is, of course is, is a separate issue from truth but it's a necessary precondition of truth you can, you, coherent world, spirituality and worldviews could be possible that are not true but incoherent ones, self-contradictory sets of beliefs, can't be true. And I'm saying that it would be self-contradictory, incoherent, to give an answer to the question about what spirituality that I, should I adopt that actually undermines the very askability of the question, of the quest for um, a wisely chosen spirituality. Um, but then I was just saying at the end there, how do, you, how do you focus down? You say, what are the possibilities? Let's, let's get rid of the possibilities that can't be true, that are inconsistent. And then of those that, that, that are live players, live options, as it were, we try and find the one that is the best fit. Not with just what we happen to like or admire, but what is admirable, as Paul was saying, what is noble, what is true. At that point, do you then say, well, it's up to you to decide what is true from there, or is there a truth which we can all discover and agree on? Uh, well, I, yeah, I think the answer to that is, is yes, because I think there is a truth, but of course it's up to us to try and find it. We are fallible, 
finite truth seekers. Um, and that gives us a sense of humbleness before the truth and the need to, to help one another and be accountable and all of that. But um, you can only be humble before something you think is an objective reality. If there is no discoverable truth, goodness, beauty, etc., why bother putting any effort into the, into the spiritual quest at all? Then you really are just to, well, just choose something that works for you. So it's, I, I'm advocating precisely um, the opposite approach. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. Is agnosticism a spirituality? Ooh, that's a really good question. Really good question. <laughs> yeah, is agnosticism. So, if you treat, uh, say, just vis-a-vis belief in God, for example, so there are different types of agnosticism, of course, but most commonly people think of agnosticism as saying, um, on the question, is there a God or not, I don't know. It's like, well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I just don't know. Okay. So that's not, a, that's not a belief about reality. That's a belief about your own state of lacking knowledge about the nature of reality, um, which is pretty hard to get wrong since it's a self-report about, you know, whether you think you, you have an opinion on it, saying, I haven't got a firm opinion on this, I should know, it's me, you know. Um, so in that sense, it's not, it's not a, a worldview belief, it's just a report of your uh, epistemological position relative to this worldview question. Um, so it's not a worldview, because you, you're precisely saying, I haven't got a view yet. But what you do with that would certainly, I think, reflect, because you'll, 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 you have, whether you thought it through or not, a spirituality. I think everyone does have one, because you do have at least some views on what is true and what is false about reality. Just like that, that set of beliefs might not include a belief about whether or not God exists, but it includes all sorts of other beliefs about things being true and things being false, to which you have attitudes on the basis of which you act and so on. And it might well be, of course, that, you know, are you the kind of agnostic who says, I don't know whether or not there's a God, therefore I'm going to, to choose things and act in the world as if there is no God... Or are you kind of agnostic who says, and therefore I'm going to choose things and respond to things and act in the world as if there is a God? Because whether or not you believe there's a God, you're going to act in ways that are either consistent or inconsistent with there being a God. And why should you, why should you jump one way rather than the other in the lack of any sort of evidential reasons for going one way or another. We're into sort of William James, Pascalian kind of discussion territory there. So I think how you respond to your state of agnosticism at the worldview level will certainly, that is part of your spirituality. Yeah. Well, Peter, thank you very much. You've given us a very good... Thank you. <laughs>